the mind of a man who had just read Psalm 103. And so I invite you to join me at Psalm 103 this morning, but before I begin there, I was just informed this morning by Karen Laverno, whose sister is Marsha, Marsha Andrews, and Marsha and her husband attended for several years our, at our church, and they've moved to Florida. Um, Marsha has been sick with COVID for 10 days, is not doing well. So Karen just asked if we would pray for her, and you know what? We're going to do that right now before we jump into the Word of God together. Father, we are so grateful that we can call on you the great physician. And Lord, we, we would lift up to you, Marsha, this morning. Lift up John as he, as he is concerned and cares for his wife. But Lord, we just pray for healing. And Lord, we know that you are the God who heals because we are reminded just by having Sarah back here with us this morning that you do great things. And so we praise you for how you have raised her up. And we ask that you would do the same in your own will for Marcia as well. Now, Lord, direct our attention to your word. Direct our attention to your greatness. Direct our attention to, to just how unfathomably awesome you are so that before we leave this place, we can lift our voices in high praise of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's our duty this morning to kind of look at Psalm 103. We're going to contemplate Psalm 103 this morning. And as I studied the psalm this week, I, I read this one commentator who said this, this psalm requires more devotion than it does exposition. This psalm requires more devotion than it does exposition. This, this is really pure praise. Um, if you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, I would just write on the top of this psalm, pure praise. This is, that's what this psalm is. As, as Pastor Andy read it this morning, he read to you the heading, and I've, as we've gone through our summers in the Psalms, I've wanted to point out to you the importance of these headings. And what's interesting about this heading is, is all it says is, this is a Psalm of David. And, and you say, what's so interesting about that, Pastor Dan? Well, there's no occasion given, there's no troubling circumstance, there's no specific holiday, there's no significant event going on in Israel. This is just David's response to the greatness of his God. And, and at times, I think you and I, we, we, we need a special occasion to go before God. We, we need to feel like, well, we got to have this thing or whatever. And, and, and you know what? There, there is really no special occasion for us to just praise God. It's estimated that this psalm, other than Psalm 23, has inspired more songs and hymns than any other psalm. And a quick trip through an old hymn book or through praise songs that are even written in the modern era will tell you that. Look with me at the beginning and the end. It begins the same way. It begins the same way. It's, bless the Lord, O my soul. And so this psalm is bookended with these blessings. And this psalm only mentions one name for God. And it's what I would call the highest name for God in our scriptures, if you can pick one that's better than the other. But the only name for God that's mentioned here is the name Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, this all-powerful God that, that the Jews, when they even wrote, the Hebrews, when they wrote down this name, they, they wrote it in such a way that signified how awesome this God was. They wrote it as, we call it Yahweh, they used no vowels in the way that they wrote it. 
And so not only is this psalm about this powerful God, but this psalm clearly contains the gospel. There's more gospel in this psalm than just about any other psalm that you can, can land in. It's a praise for this great almighty God, his authority and his salvation. And I want to say to you this morning, if you are here and you are the child of God, you have every reason this morning to be one of the loudest praisers of God. But let's be honest. Pastor Andy, I think you said it this way. Our world's a mess. I'm going to call it this. I wrote it here in my notes. Our world's a dumpster fire right now of epic proportions, of epic proportions. There's a lot to be concerned about. How many of you found yourself complaining this week about stuff going on in the world? How many of you found yourself complaining about things happening in Washington, D.C. or not happening in Washington, D.C.? How many of you found yourself angry this week? I did. On the very day I was writing this message, I turned around to my computer, which sits behind me, and, and I pulled up Twitter. Bad mistake. Because I follow people who just make me angry. I'm stupid that way, okay? And, and, and what I found was, sitting in my office this week, sitting in my office on Thursday, on one hand, I'm in the Word, and I'm like, man, our God is an awesome God. And then I literally turn and look at my computer, and I'm like, oh, I hate this place. You ever feel that way? Yeah. And so the goal for us this morning is to allow Psalm 103, to allow God and His Word to, to lift us past all of this temporary dumpster fire. You realize this is all going away, don't you? To lift us past that, this heavy stuff, to give us a big view of who God is that will compel us to praise Him. Now, we get to do this individually. But this morning in God's design and the beauty of the church, we get to do it corporately this morning. So before we're done this morning, we're going to end this morning with a big praise service. You okay with that? We need it more than anything, I think. So I want to just briefly take us through Psalm 103. And, and, and this is the last, summer that, or the, the last Sunday of the summer that we're going to be in the Psalms. So as I have been preaching through and the other guys have been preaching through the Psalms to you, I, I've been trying to give you an outline as we begin. And I hope this helps you to understand the psalm. And really, this is just a simple three-point outline. Verses 1 through 5, we see David's personal praise for the blessings that he has experienced. And if you're the child of God this morning, I hope these resonate with you because they're all experiences that you and I have experienced. Secondly, then, we're going to see in verses 6 through 19, David leading in corporate praise for the blessings that God's people have experienced. Hopefully, we're sitting in a room that's predominantly made up of God's people this morning, and we have a lot to be thankful for, and David's going to point that out to us. And then he ends with this, this amazing plea, if you will, to the universe. It's an invitation to all of creation to praise God, kind of what we sang at the beginning here, all creatures of our God and King, to praise God. So let's just dig into it first, and let's look first at the, the personal blessings that David has experienced. I said it once before, but I'm going to say it again. If you are the child of God here this morning, you have every 
reason to be praising God. You have no reason this morning to not praise God. Do you realize that? You have no reason to not praise Him. In fact, I want you just to mentally make a list of the reasons why you might not praise God. Will you do that? How many of you making that list right now mentally of reasons why you might not praise God? Then let me ask you a question. Is God greater than all of those reasons? Is He? We have no reason to not praise Him. We have every reason to praise Him. But I just want to note in verse 1 how David makes this personal. Bless the Lord, O my soul. How many of you have ever gotten a pep talk from a spouse or a co-worker or somebody where, where you've been down and you had to get the pep talk? How many of you have ever gotten the pep talk? Yeah. How many of you have ever given yourself a pep talk? This is what David's doing right here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. My soul. And so this morning, I would say to you, that, that we all need to do some soul work ourselves and we need to not worry about the neighbor next to you who's grumpy and whatever. Guess what? They're going to always be grumpy probably. Husbands, look at your wives. Wives, look at your husbands. They're going to always be grumpy, aren't they? Stop preaching to them. Preach to your own soul right now. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And this is where it needs to begin. And, and last week I mentioned to you how posture is so important, or it was two weeks ago I mentioned to you how posture is so important in the Psalms. That word bless deals with posture. Literally, when you look it up, it means to, ab to adore with bended knee. To adore with bended knee. Now, to bend the knee means you have to kneel. I would do it for you this morning, but you would hear my knees crack, and that'd be really embarrassing. But you got to get on your knees before God. It's a place of humility. And, and I submit to you that the only way you can truly praise God adequately is, is to humble yourself. He will not share his glory with anyone. And so this morning, David would invite us to bow the knee before God and to offer our praise to him. In verse 2, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Basically, what he's saying here is, is don't allow ourselves to even forget one good thing that God has done for us. Let's talk about human nature for a second, though. Most of our memories seem to be really excellent at remembering old hurts and grievances and failures. Am I right? We, we, can remember, we can remember all the wrongs that have been done to us. We can remember all the hurts that we have. We can, re, we can easily remember the problems that we have with other people. We got those mentally classified and all, all neatly filed in the folders of our lives, don't we? And it's easy because we hold on to the things that we shouldn't to forget the greatness the majesty and the excellencies of our God. It's really easy to forget those. And David is imploring us. He is begging with us. People, listen to me. Don't forget my own soul. Don't forget how good God is. Don't forget all that he has done. When you see American soldiers coming home in body bags like they did this morning and you get upset with what's going on in the world and you watch women throwing their babies over the wall in Afghanistan, it's easy to forget that God is good. But I am here to tell you this morning that our God is a good God. 
And I'm here to tell us this morning that our God is a faithful God. And it's easy to forget it in this world. And so what David does is, he picks out in his mind, I, I think this is David just very personally here, just, just going through the storehouse of his mind, rehearsing God's goodness. And these are the things that he picks out. And boy, when he makes a list, he makes a really good list here. Notice the things that, that David himself doesn't want to forget. Verse 3, that our God is a forgiving God. And he doesn't just forgive some of it, he forgives all of our iniquities. Do you see it there in verse 3? He forgives all of our iniquities. I don't know about you, but there is no greater joy in knowing that you have been forgiven. The, the knowing that, that the guilt that, that you once felt is all forgiven, that it's done, that your debt is paid, and that not only that, you're in a right relationship with God. There's nothing greater than that in the world. He says, number one thing that I don't want to forget is, is that our God is a forgiving God. If you haven't experienced that forgiveness, I would beg of you today. That, that is your greatest need here this morning. It's not just to learn how to praise God, it's to be forgiven by God. And those of us in this room that have experienced that forgiveness, there is no greater joy-producing thing in your life than that. I don't care how screwed up your life is right now, your job, your marriage, I don't care how sick your family members are, there is always a cause for joy in knowing that you are forgiven. And he goes on to say, not only does he forgive all our iniquities, he heals all our diseases. I don't know exactly what David is implying here. Is it diseases of the body or diseases of the soul? But I know this, he heals both. Ultimately, we will all be completely healed physically if we are in Christ. Do you know that? I can't say that it'll happen on this earth, but I can say this for sure, that there is coming a day for the child of God that you will be completely whole and healed. But I do know this, because I've experienced it in my own life, that nothing has ever cured my soul like Almighty God has. No one has ever cured my soul. And my soul has got some pretty bad diseases in it that he's had to cure. He doesn't stop there. He forgives, he heals, and he redeems. He redeems your life from the pit. Maybe we don't want to say it this morning. Maybe we don't acknowledge it. But, but everybody, you're, you're on a ride now, right now on life, and where is that ride headed to? Where does it end for you physically? A cemetery, doesn't it? And often in the Bible, it's referred to as a pit. And it's, 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 this, it's this place of death. And, and, and what David here is saying, yes, we, we are bought with the price and we have been redeemed. And, and that death sentence of guilt has been totally lifted off of us. Yeah, we may die physically, but we're not going to stay in the grave, are we? He says we're redeemed from the pit. Which, that ought to be enough, don't you think? <laughs> just, just stop and think with me. Being forgiven, being healed, and being redeemed ought to be enough. Say it, right, right? That's, that's enough, right? And David's like, wait a minute, we're not done here. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Question for you, church. Who are the people who get crowned in life? How many of you wear a crown on your job? I don't think we have any Burger King employees here. How many of you wear a crown on your job? 
Who are the people who wear crowns? Royalty. Do you understand what God is saying here through David? He treats us like royalty. Now, is there anybody in this room that deserves it? You don't even know how to do the royal wave. God chooses to treat us like royalty, and how does he do it? He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He, 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 he literally treats us with tender compassion and mercy like we're royalty. This is not a crown that you and I have ever earned. It's a crown that's been given to us. J.I. Packer put it this way. There is a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me, his steadfast love to me, is based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. Do you understand that? God chooses to love us, and when he chooses to love us, he knows our absolute worst. Don't think this way, but I'm guessing some of us would not choose to love our spouses if we knew their absolute worst. God chooses to love us, knowing at the beginning the absolute worst about us. On top of that, then, he says in verse 5, he satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you know the only, truly people, the only people in life that can truly be satisfied are the redeemed? Have you figured that out? Because, because if you're not in Christ, you don't know what ultimate soul satisfaction is. And, and, and this morning, if you're sitting here and you're not satisfied with life, one of two things is, is going on. Either you're not the child of God, or you're attempting to be satisfied with something else that isn't him. Because here's the promise. He satisfies you with good, so much so that your strength is renewed. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait upon the Lord will what? They'll renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll walk and not be weary. They'll run and they'll not faint. Now, we would love that, those of us who are getting older, if that was physical strength. That, that physical strength is not the point of what David's saying here. What he's saying is he renews our souls day by day with his strength. So David basically is pointed to having our sins forgiven, the power of sin overthrown in our life, it's penalty annulled, and, and, now, and now we're treated like, like God's royal family here with steadfast love and mercy and supplied with strength. How can we not praise God? It's no wonder Charles, West, Charles Wesley wrote it this way, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. If verses one through five don't excite you, you don't have a soul. But let's briefly look at the corporate praise that, that all of God's people have experienced. He's speaking sp specifically here about Israel, but, but it's true for all of us who are in the body of Christ. Look at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. <laughs> that, that's, a great, that's a great verse because our world is working hard to solve the injustices and the unrighteousness that's going on in the world, except they're going about it the wrong way. Only God can bring true righteousness and justice to the situation. He does what no movement, no man, no government can do. He brings righteousness and justice for the oppressed. 
He leads. Do you see it there in verse 7? He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then in verses 8 through 12, he leads in this, this corporate rehearsing of God's salvation. You see salvation, you see the gospel here clearly given in verses 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Mercy pardons sin, grace gives undeserved favor. And if God wasn't slow to anger, there would be none of us in this room this morning, am I right? And so here we have this picture of God in verse 8. Here's a merciful, gracious God doing things that, that, that he shouldn't do in one hand, but he chooses to do because he is God. He, he's showing mercy to people who, who, or are, who are rejecting it. He's pardoning sin. He's giving undeserved pay, favor to people who don't deserve this undeserved favor. He, he's literally abounding in steadfast love. He is patiently showing love and not anger. Spurgeon, in writing about this psalm at this verse, said this, and I, I love the way he pictures this. He says, above the mountains of our sin, the flood of God's mercy rises. Any of you in this room would agree with, like me and Spurgeon, that you have mountains of sin? Yeah, you think about how tall those mountains of sin are. God's flood of mercy goes over those mountains. Verse 9 he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God will, for, he will correct sin, but, but here's the thing. He doesn't continue to chide us over that. How many of you have ever done this to somebody where maybe it's a child, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's somebody you're in a relationship with where you have brought up past sins? Have you ever done that to somebody or had that done to you? Do you remember that time in 1964 when you just said this? That's not the way our God operates. Verse 10, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. If he did, as I said before, there'd be none of us in this room. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. The fact that we all have committed sin and iniquity would say that we all deserve to die. And here's what God does. Here's what God does. No, you don't have to die. My son will die and he will pay for your sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He literally poured his judgment, his wrath out on his son so that we don't have to be held accountable for our iniquities before him. We can have them forgiven. And then he says... In verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Can you even begin to imagine how high the heavens are? Scientists would tell us that space goes out there forever and ever, it seems like. And, 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 to, and to reach the heights of the heavens, we can't build a ship big enough to get there. We can't build something powerful enough to get there. And yet our God's love is higher than those heavens. I already mentioned the beauty of forgiveness, but he separates our sins there in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, can anybody tell me how far that is? Can anybody demonstrate that for us? 
When God says he forgets our sins and separates them, he really does it in a way that only God can do. I don't know where the east starts and where the west starts, but God does. And he takes my sin that far out there, as far as the east is from the west. But then in verse 13, it kind of shifts. And, and, and if we've seen this big, powerful view of God, this one who's, who's, who's as high as the heavens and whose who's steadfast love is, is, is towering in the, in, the, in the expanse above us, then it gets really personal in verse 13. And, and let's face it, there are days, there are moments in just about every day where we need a personal God, don't we? How many of you need a personal God? And this is the personal God that, that David is leading the congregation, if you will, in, into rehearsing. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Fathers, how many times have you picked up your kids when have they fallen down, scraped their knees? When, when, when your kids have, have, have disappointed you and they've, they've screwed up in life, how many times have you just put your arms around them and hugged them and you've told them it'll be okay, even in your own mind, wondering if it will really be okay? You ever done that, Dad? Here's what God Almighty does. He does the same thing for us. He picks us up when we scrape our knees. When we screw it up down here, he says this, I, my steadfast love is still here. I'm still showing compassion towards you. He tenderly cares for us. And he, and he understands, he understands just how frail we are. Look at verse 14. He, he knows our frame. He knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows I can't hit the two iron. God, God knows, God knows, God knows that, 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 that I can't be quick-witted. I can't come up with quick one-liners. He also knows the things that really make me afraid, too. He knows the things that make me really insecure. He, he understands me, and he understands you as well. He knows our frame. He knows your makeup. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your frailties. He knows your kryptonite, those of you who think you're Superman. He knows what tempts you. And he remembers that we're just dust. He remembers that, he remembers that, that we're all falling apart. God, God knows that. You, you think you're the only person who knows that you're falling apart? God knows you're falling apart right now. So much so that, that David just says it this way, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. You walk by a hay field and you see all those beautiful flowers out there, but then the next day you come by and it just looks like, where, where'd they all go? Verse 16, the wind passes over and it is gone and its place is known no more. In Isaiah, it says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but his word abides forever. And here's the thing, as, as much as, as you and I are temporary, 
look at look at how big God is in verses 17 through 19. We're we're just very temporary. We're like we're like a piece of grass that one day's there and it's gone. In verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. How many grandparents are there here in the room this morning? Grandparents? It's a great thing to be a grandparent, isn't it? Aren't you glad it's not our righteousness that goes to our children's children? (laughs) Grandchildren in the room, be glad that it's not your grandparents' righteousness going to you. It's God's righteousness to the children's children. But there is this call to obedience. Do you see it there in verse 18? Even grandchildren have to obey. How fitting we have little kids in with us this morning. Grandchildren, guess what? It's not just enough that you have a godly grandfather and grandmother and godly parents. You have to obey yourself. Do you see it there in verse 18? To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You see, God is good to those who fear him. God is good to those who obey him. And he is a big God. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's not one place on this earth that you can go right now. There's not one corner of this universe that you can fly to in your rocket ship where you will avoid God's ruling authority in your life. He rules over all. And so David comes to this conclusion because God's been good to him individually, because God's been good to his people, because God's been good to you individually, because God's been good to us as a church. We could say it that way this morning. What do we do? Well, we invite the whole universe to join us in praise. Look at verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. It's interesting that he starts with angelic beings. These are the ones that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is what he says about them. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. He's talking about the church. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things, things into which angels long to look. Do you know that angels look down here at earth and they see Christ dying? They see his redemption plan. They see the church and they are amazed by what they see in heaven. It's what God's word records for us. It's like we can't fully fathom this as angels. And so David says, hey, angelic choirs, join in with us. And then in verse 22, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Alligators, join in. Elephants, join in. Streams and mountains and rocks, join in. Stars way out there, join in, praising God. And then he just comes back to himself. And you, David, and you, Scarberry, you lead the chorus. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
we structured this service differently. I told you we did so that we could end by praising God. Tell me, church, after, after rehearsing Psalm 103, is he worthy to be praised? No matter how screwed up the world is, is he worthy to be praised? No matter how sad you are today, is he worthy to be praised? No matter how disappointed you are in what's going on in your life, is he worthy to be praised? Yeah. I heard John MacArthur preach a message on this psalm. And he ended it this way. And it fits because we're about to, to see how this fits and I'll help you to understand it. And so I'm stealing an ending from John MacArthur to his message, okay? I got to be clear on that, okay? In 1974, they were, in 74, there was a little boy born in England. This little boy was born into a very dysfunctional family. His father committed suicide when the little boy was seven and he didn't find out until he was 10. He obviously had some scars growing up. His mother remarried to a very abusive stepfather who eventually ended up in prison for abusing the family. Would you say that he had some strikes against him? Sometime later in his youth, he went to a mission meeting in England where he heard the gospel and he was converted to Christ. He happened to be a very good musician and in wanting to celebrate what Christ had done in his life, he started writing songs. And one day he's reading Psalm 103 and he wrote a song on Psalm 103. Worship team, come on up here. He came to Psalm 103 and he wrote a song based on Psalm 103. The name of that song is 10,000 Reasons. And that little boy was Matt Redman. And his song is an expression of Psalm 103, just as much as all creatures of our God and King is. And so this morning, let's stand up and praise our God. And we're going to begin by doing it with 10,000 Reasons. <laughs> 